Hello and welcome to Exploding Helicopter, the only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating the cinematic art of helicopter explosion. On each show we take a look at a different film to either celebrate the imagination, ingenuity and innovation of a great helicopter explosion, or castigate those filmmakers who present us with poorly executed chopper fireballs. My name is Will and I'm piloting this podcast, hopefully helping to steer a course through this most niche of micro-genres. Now, the term cult movie has become rather overused in recent years, but I think it's fair to say that the film we're looking at on this show definitely deserves that title. We're talking about the frankly bonkers 1987 action movie Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Joining me to discuss the film is Elwood Jones from The Depths of DVD Hell and the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange podcast. Elwood, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Do you want to take a moment to shamelessly promote your website and podcast? As you said already, uh, my main site is From the Depths of DVD Hell. Basically, it's my love letter to cult, foreign and obscure cinema. From there, we've obviously created the, the Mad, Bad and Damn Strange list, which is a 1001 film introduction to cult and obscure cinema. And we've recently launched the podcast, the uh, Mad, Bad and Damn Strange Showcase, which you've uh, obviously been a guest on, well, uh, a couple of times now, I believe. Several times, indeed. So we try to do something different on every show. Uh, the list itself, which you can find on Letterbox, it's a real mixture list. And we don't like to use the word essential because within the cult community especially, people tend to be a bit vocal when you start saying what's essential and what's not. So we prefer just to refer to it as an introduction and people can see what they like and uh, go from there. Other than that, I'm also writing for Channel Superhero, which you can find at channelsuperhero.com, which is a nice, interesting change of pace from just looking at cult and obscure movies that most of the time no one's uh, ever really heard of, which I think, <laughs> again, could be said for this film. Yes, but we might uh, sort of touch on this a bit later. I think this, it is a film which seems to be sort of slowly growing in um, sort of appreciation as the years go by. Before we don our hula skirts and say aloha to uh, today's film, have you seen anything lately in the uh, world of uh, cinema that's caught your interest? The film which really caught my interest is the uh, film by uh, William Frenchigan, I believe, who's probably best off known for directing the likes of The Exorcist, The French Connection, and that's the film Killer Joe. It's a 2011 American Southern Gothic. stars Matthew McConaughey. A lot of people say when it comes to Matthew McConaughey, they think he only became a good actor with the likes of Dallas Buyers Club, and if you're perhaps a little more indie thinking, the likes of Mud. But here he proves that he can actually act. Here he plays the softly spoken psychopath of the title. This film, like Reservoir Dogs, is about a film about idiots. Everyone in this <laughs> film is an idiot, basically. And it's basically how they can screw up what should be a very simple plan. They just constantly find new ways to sort of double-cross each other or screw things up. And it's really just how the film sort of progresses and it reaches its violent climax, should we say. It uh, also features a most uh, well-discussed sequence involving a piece of fried chicken, which uh, we won't go into because it tends to overshadow everything else in the film. And this is a family podcast as well. <laughs> God knows how we're going to uh, sort of talk about the rest of the film <laughs> this evening, but it's really fun to can returning to his sort of like the level he was working at before he went through sort of a low uh, with films like Bug but here he sort of like seems to regain his mojo and gets back on track in my view it was quite a lull because uh, sort of freaking after about sort of sort of, to live and die in LA I think was one of his films and that was in the yep. mid 80s and after that he basically produced pretty much rubbish for 25 nearly 30 nearly 30 years so yeah live and die in LA I think 
as you said, I think that was the last good film we did. I mean, that was 85. There's been some real stinkers uh, in between. But, uh, yeah, as I said, he was doing things like Jade. He did, like, the TV remake of 12 Angry Men and uh, the Benicio Del Toro, Tommy Lee Jones thriller, The Hunted. That wasn't too bad, I didn't think, actually. There was some good stuff in there. You could see what drew freaking to that film yeah and there's a really great knife fight in that film i thought mm. i mean that again that's 2003 so you started to get back I and mean, then we obviously did bug which is 2007 and then killer joe which is currently today his last uh sort of film credit and that's way back in 2011 which doesn't it doesn't seem like five minutes ago since this film was being sort of promoted it sort of came out and then sort of disappeared uh, which I think is why a lot of people have said that McConaughey, they sort of give, start giving him sort of like major props for like the Dallas Buyers Club and obviously giving him his Oscar win there and completely forgot about this film, which is kind of a shame, really. Yeah, it's um, a film, I have seen it. I have to say, I didn't particularly enjoy it. I was really looking forward to it because it got, um, it garnered quite a lot of good reviews. But um, I came away um, a bit disappointed. But I haven't written it off. I think it's one of those films that I really want to give it a rewatch before coming to a final verdict on it. But uh, the film that I wanted, uh, the film that I wanted to sort of mention uh, on this show was, that I've watched uh, recently was uh, I rewatched RoboCop 2, which uh, obviously the sequel to the uh, uh, Paul Verhoeven film, which came out in '87. So RoboCop 2 sort of finally came out in uh, 1990. It's directed by uh, Irving Kirshner of um, Empire Strikes Back fame. It started quite, for my money, for my money, it started very promisingly. It had some interesting sort of ideas about, about humanity and, and what it means to be human. But then sort of, it then sort of dispenses with those ideas and then just essentially moves into a shoot 'em up for, uh, the rest of the film. I, I really enjoyed this one. I know a lot of people I tend, will disagree with me on this, and this probably said a lot about my own film taste, the fact that I'm actually getting behind this film and the film <laughs> I'm going to talk about this evening. So whether this is going to like discredit anything I say about recommending any <laughs> film at all, I'll let the, let the audience decide for themselves. I love the fact that they try, they're try they trying to make a Robocop 2. It's not just a title alone. They are actually trying to build a Robocop 2 throughout the film, and you have all these like test models and they just like go insane which is just what was the incredibly funny scene and the fact that you they had come up with a good idea of oh let's take the big evil this drug dealer we've been trying to capture and we'll put his brain into the new robocop model because that's of course going to end well of course but I, there's so many moments i like about it the scene where robocop's chasing after the armored trucks and he's holding on to the side and he's like being dragged through buildings and it's like just a tiny little lamppost that finally knocks him off sure it's not Perhaps not as good as the original, but yeah, there's there's a lot of things I I enjoy. It's certainly a lot better than Robocop Three. Yeah, Robocop Three. Not a film I've I haven't seen that for a long, long time. But my abiding memory of that is is a is a franchise that had just like fallen off the cliff. Okay, so I think it's time to get stuck into the film for today's show: Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Four of America's finest ready and willing to pay the price for paradise. Ah. They're undercover, but not under-equipped. On this mission, there's hard flying, hard fighting. Agents are everywhere. Have no mercy. 
So Hard Ticket to Hawaii was made in 1987 and was written and directed by uh, Andy Sidaris. And as for the plot, it's a little tricky to describe as this isn't perhaps the most uh, linear of films. But broadly speaking, there are two sort of undercover government agents who accidentally break up a diamond smuggling operation. The local criminal kingpin sets out to recover his gems. Uh, meanwhile, a contaminated killer snake is on the loose on the island. So the question then becomes, can our heroes bring down the villains before they're bumped off? And what say will the Sinister Serpent have in uh, all of this? Elwood, this was sort of your pick. It's yep. uh, Hard Ticket to Hawaii was definitely, uh, as, as already mentioned, definitely a film that uh, deserves the uh, label cult movie. It was a, as, and as we sort of mentioned, it was directed by uh, Andy Sidaris. What can you sort of tell people um, sort of listening uh, about this guy? Because, uh, yeah, he might not be uh, that familiar to uh, everybody yep. listening. I mean, first of all, I just wanted to congratulate you for actually finding a plot for this, because I was watching this, I had no clue what was going on. So uh, <laughs> kudos to yourself, really, for managing to find, figure out what was supposed to be happening here. Andy Sidaris, this is really the second of his Triple B series, or, which is, stands for Bullets, Bombs and Babes. These films essentially do what it says on the tin. Andy Sidaris, he follows that generation of filmmakers like Russ Myers. He really follows in the footsteps of Russ Myers especially for... Building all these films around glamorous ladies, uh, in particular Penthouse Pets and Playmates of the Year, which, again, that was another key thing about these films is that they do frequent, feature frequent nudity, which, again, has absolutely nothing to do with the plot. The film themselves also feature a number of B-movie sort of action hero sort of types, very sort of traditional 80s sort of type, as you notice with the bad hair and sort of their... Massive sunglasses, loud shirts. They're very much of their, their time. Should we say? <laughs> but as uh, you said, well, these have, in recent years, become more popular. Sort of like with a midnight screening, they do feature some truly random moments. And Hard Ticket to Why I think is really the perfect entry point for these films. Yes, uh, as you said, some absolutely crazy stuff happens uh, in these films, and we might as well get straight into it. So, I mean, I won't make you sort of pick out one particular moment, but uh, what were what were some of your sort of favourite moments of like craziness? There is so many. There's so many great moments. As you mentioned before, the snake subplot. <laughs> We have this random subplot involving this poisonous snake that you think, oh, it's going to tie in to like some bit of the main plot. It's going to play this key part, but it doesn't. It's just some random subplot that is thrown in because I'm guessing that so I thought it'd be really good to have a, have a poisonous snake. And it sort of fills in the quieter moments of the action where they're kind of like not sure what to do. So they have these time scenes with the snake attacking someone. The presence of the snake reminds me a bit of what Raymond Chandler used to say about uh, writing his novels and when he got stuck with the plot of a novel he uh, he said that what he used to do was to just have somebody burst through a door with a gun in their hand and i think that's um it seems to be a bit approach the approach that uh, Andy Sidaris is taking with this film in the sense that if he doesn't know quite know what to happen what needs to happen next in the film he just has the snake slither into <laughs> into into a particular scene and cause some havoc just to kind of liven things up again or get something happening yeah and there are so many random scenes like we have a scene where they go to a sumo wrestling school, and it seems to have no point to the plot whatsoever. It just apart from to have one of the ladies speak a bit of Japanese to two guys who look strangely more American than they do Japanese. And again, this is the last we see of the sumo wrestlers. There's no big reveal for them. As we've mentioned already, the snake randomly shows up as, as the big finale here. Um, and it 
more randomly, it, the toilet explodes for its big final appearance. This film is so random that actually that moment caught me completely by surprise because it the film had gone off on so many different tangents. I kind of forgot that the the snake was even still in the film. Yeah. Because, and there was so much crazy stuff sort of happening up until that moment anyway that I'd completely forgotten about the snake. So it worked for me perfectly because... Yeah, the snake just bursts out of this toilet out of nowhere and is then killed by somebody crushing through the walls of a apartment building on a motorcycle and shooting it with a bazooka. I mean, what other way would you, you know, what else would you expect to happen to resolve that situation? Well, it has to be said, this is the toughest snake. <laughs> it, it, it gets shot, blown up, and then it takes a bazooka to blow up the snake. There's a villain that uh, one of the ladies is fighting with before, and he's almost as tough as this snake. I mean, he gets shot with a harpoon gun, stabbed, and then randomly staggers towards the snake in the bathroom, not attacking the lady he was attacking before. He just randomly decides to go to the bathroom where he's attacked by this snake that eventually, as you said, is uh, blown up by one of our leading men. But the bazooka use, especially in this film, is absolutely incredible. I've never seen such creative bazooka use. Yeah, the bazooka makes regular, frequent, and as you say, very creative appearances in this film. And I think, for me, definitely one of the craziest moments in this film, and definitely one of my standout moments, was the... There's a very bizarre sequence where um, our heroes, uh, where the villains attempt to uh, assassinate our heroes, where one of them gets on board a skateboard, is ca- whilst carrying a sex doll... Um, is doing a handstand at one point, then tries to shoot, shoot our sort of heroes who are kind of like in a, in a jeep at the time. They respond by getting a bazooka out, shooting the skateboard, and then, uh, the, the kind of the, the villain and the sex, sex doll go flying, uh, into the air. And there's, a, there are a couple of further bazooka shots to, uh, to shoot the villain and then, like, brilliantly, and then also bazooka the sex doll as well. I mean, it just, absolutely uh you know i as that scene started i had absolutely no idea you know as i saw someone hat riding on a skateboard uh upside down doing a handstand carrying a sex doll i had absolutely no idea where this scene was going and still really had you know had absolutely no idea what was going to happen at any point in that scene i can definitely say that i have never seen anything like that before in a film i i have to wonder the reasoning for the sex doll i mean <laughs> Yes, I can understand. Yes, the skateboard and he's there with the rifle. That all makes sense. Why are you carrying a sex doll and a rifle? The only thing I could think the the sex doll was obscuring the rifle, um, but <laughs> it's not the most discreet way of disguising the fact um, that you're sort of carrying a carrying a weapon. Because you know, if you see somebody uh, on a skateboard carrying a sex doll, that's probably going to catch your eye and draw your attention. So I'm not sure it was the most the best strategy to employ to kind of do a discreet, uh, discreet assassination. I mean, let's not forget when he shoots it with the bazooka, it blows up like it's like he's blown up a helicopter. <laughs> I don't know what they filled this this sex doll with, but it blows up with the same like ferocious explosion that the the assassin does when he shoots him, and it's the longest time that these two people are in the air, both the sex doll and the assassin. The laws of physics seem to be tem- <laughs> temporarily suspended during uh, that particular scene. I think the, there's an also there's an also another very famous scene in this uh, film which I enjoyed a lot, which uh, takes place on a on a beach and involves uh, uh, a frisbee uh, being used to 
sort of decapitate somebody or or near as near as damn it decapitate somebody. The Razorblade Frisbee has got to be up there. And it, if we were like to do a list of the greatest sort of fantastical weapons, we would have the Frisbee from this film, the Metal Boomerang from Mad Max Two, <laughs> um, and perhaps the Killer Yo-Yos from Savior of the Soul. Having spoken a little bit about all the things that's sort of going on visually in this film, it's um, easy to sort of overlook some of the dialogue, which um, I found really amazing in this film. And, you know, I hesitate to call the dialogue good, but it does have a kind of original gonzoid tone, which is just completely unique. I don't know what you made of it all. There is, as you said, there is some absolutely uh, wonderful dialogue in this film. <laughs> um a lot of it I don't think we're going to be able to <laughs> repeat on the uh, <laughs> podcast just due to uh, affecting the, your rating here. I'm just obviously like going through like some of the stuff I've written down, and oh, I just I, at the moment everything I'm looking at is just all like, no, we ain't going to be able to say this. But well, I mean, there's there's a couple of guys in there. They're eyeing, a, a, t- talking about a particularly attractive lady, and uh, one of them goes off. If you go down on her, you're going to be kissing the back <laughs> of my hair, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think the other line is uh, when they're like, when he, when he like questions when he hits the assassin with a bazooka, and he's like, a bazooka rowdy? And he's like, it's the only gun I can hit a moving target with. <laughs> well, that, that, that does at least, that does at least, I mean, that, <laughs> I mean, he's got to be the worst government agent that the only, he can't use a gun at all. The only, <laughs> the only, the only like weapon the that shot. he <laughs> The only weapon that he can use effectively is a bazooka, which, uh, you know, probably anyone could probably uh, have a rough chance of killing somebody with a bazooka. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's some absolutely, some very strange, very strange lines in this, uh, in this, in this film. And, you know, I kind of, I love the fact that, um, I think what, the, probably one of the best things about this, this particular film is that it just feels like Andy Sedaris has just got this really, he's just got a, a unique sort of spin and take on things and you know he's he's writing directing and like putting you know and producing these films himself so he's got absolutely free reign to kind of do what he wants to do with these films and he's kind of clearly aping tropes in other films but he's got just a unique sort of uh vision of the world yeah which means that Things that, as, as we were sort of talking about, the, the scenes with the, you know, people doing handstands with sex dolls on skateboards, you know, these random dialogue, it just means, you know, I've, as I say, I've never seen scenes like this in other films. I've never heard people speak like they do in this, in this particular film. And, you know, because, and because of that, he's, he's just had this sort of free reign to sort of come up with a film that is, you know, really unique in tone. I think in many ways he's trying to, I don't know if it's how intentional this was, but he parodies a lot of the sort of 80s action movie traits. While obviously being a fan, it would seem, of attractive ladies who aren't afraid, aren't averse to being naked on frequent occasions. And in a way, he's following the same sort of path that Jim uh, Wynowski, who did films like Chopping Moth. Mm. And again, seems to have picked up the mantle left by Sedaris by if you especially go on his Facebook page of having like uh, Russ Myers he's a big fan of large breasted ladies and he does like to include them in it and again with Sedaris he likes to include these attractive ladies who not so like bimbos even though they could be seen as because obviously they're background but these like tough ladies who shoot guns and 
hold their own in that sort of action scene. And I love the fact that within the Stoic world, you can accept things such as on the girl's apartment wall, you've got posters for his previous films. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of outrageous, but it's done with such... It's just done in such an unapologetic way that you you can't you sort of have to give it a pass. Yeah, I love the fact they're discussing the previous film, Malibu Express, <laughs> and, and they're like discussing as if it's a movie, and it's sort of like this was the film which came before this one. It's supposedly in the same series, and that and the frequent references to James Bond, which are just peppered with throughout the film. You mentioned something I wanted to pick up on, which was that Sidaris is clearly influenced by Ross Meyer, and I'd sort of, um, sort of absolutely agree with that. There's, there's many parallels there, and I think um, sort of Roger Corman as well is somebody who I think Sidaris is, is, you know, is somebody who's working in a kind of similar ilk to yeah. him. But um, so I just wondered, you know, those are obviously people who um, sort of came prior to Sidaris that maybe he was um, inspired by or sort of drawing inspiration on. I just wondered, um, you know, you've already mentioned sort of Jim Wynorski. You know, is there anybody else working today that you think has been um, sort of influenced by Sidaris? It's, it's hard to I think there's obviously people who have been influenced when you look at people like Rodriguez, Tarantino, the directors who are working within the same sort of genre, even though they're not perhaps referencing the same, he certainly had an influence on the sort of genre. I think if we were to obviously talk about key directors within the sort of B-movie genre, that perhaps they influenced to an extent people working sort of in the neo-grindhouse genre, then I would say he's certainly influential. But for my money, I would say sort of likes of uh, Rodriguez and Tarantino would still be the main sort of ones. Renowski being the most obvious one, though. So these films are obviously made on a low budget with non-professional actors in a story that barely makes sense. What's your what would your argument be for why anyone should sort of track these down and watch them? You can't just sort of survive on sort of mainstream cinema alone. It's giving you everything essentially what you want. You want to see fun shootouts. You want to see attractive ladies. You want to see things blow up. This movie has it all. While I wouldn't obviously recommend just living off these sort of movies alone, it certainly <laughs> makes you a more rounded moviegoer. While they may not be the most artistic, they certainly won't be the most award-winning, certainly not in the traditional sort of award sense. Again, they're, they're fun. They're sort of movies you can have some friends around and just make fun of it and enjoy it. Well, I think you put your finger on exactly the reason why I would potentially recommend this film to people to sort of go out and watch is, is because if you do watch it, you will see things in this film that you have never seen before. Um, you will see, perhaps see acting, um, worse than you've ever seen before, but you, uh, you will also at this, by the same token see, um, scenes the like of which you won't have seen in, in another film. Okay, so I think it's that point in the show where we need to uh, talk about the exploding helicopter and the key scene happens towards the end of the film when our heroes have made an assault on the the villain's hideout. A couple of baddies try to make an escape in a helicopter. Fortunately, our protagonists have brought an assortment of weapons with them, including the aforementioned bazooka, which uh, is now making yet another appearance in the film. As the chopper takes flight... And the villains open fire. One of the heroes steps forward and blows up the chopper uh, with the bazooka. Um, Elwood, what did you make of the exploding helicopter action here? It's a sort of standard sort of helicopter explosion. It's nothing particularly special. I was actually panicking while I was watching this that this film didn't have a helicopter explosion. And I recommended <laughs> it to you. So kind of relieved to see it there at the end. As you said, it's via the bazooka, which at this point 
seems to vary in its actual power because we've seen it blow up someone at point blank range. When the helicopter took off, I was sure that this would be the moment the snake would come back. <laughs> that it would like appear in the back and it would like attack the guy and he would like crash the helicopter. But no, it's just the standard, oh, they're making an escape in the helicopter and oh, look at us, we've got this bazooka and we'll blow it up. So you do get to see a hot girl firing a bazooka, which is cool. Yeah, it's a rare moment when uh, you see uh, a woman blow up a helicopter because that is uh, that's not something that is terribly common, um, as I found in my uh, sort of journeys through the uh, exploding helicopter universes. That uh, it's a pretty uh, male-dominated world, so this is a this is a fairly unique film in that perspective. I guess you could say it's a bit of a boys' club, really, the uh, helicopter blowing up club. But we do obviously see here. I think, for my money, the only the second time I've seen a woman actually firing a, a bazooka in a in a mainstream movie. The other example coming to mind being in Commando, where the police truck is uh, yeah knocked in its side by the sort of sidekick, should we say? I can't remember the actress. Who... I think it's is it Ray Dawn Chong? I think it's that. I, I believe so. Apologies I if I've bungled her name. <laughs> Again, there's another exclusive club of uh, women firing bazookas. Well, at least this, at least this lady fires it uh, competently because obviously in, in Commando, um, she fires the bazooka the wrong way initially because she doesn't know. Um, oh, well, we, you know, to be honest, she is a she's a stewardess on a plane. There's no reason. There's no reason why she should know how to fire a bazooka. So, but they they obviously do make some uh, comedic capital out of. Uh, out of that before um before she then um, expertly uh, bazookas the truck i did i did particularly like in this film that um i think well there's a couple of tropes uh, uh, here which uh, uh, veteran exploding helicopter fans will recognize is that helicopters generally make pretty lousy um, escape vehicles because they they can't take off very quickly that provides plenty of time for uh, the heroes to uh, to blow the uh, the blow the helicopter up and uh, but i did i did notice and this is a sort of a rare sort of moment of um of kind of i guess mercy really where the the lady sort of firing the bazooka sort of says no don't do it as this helicopter is sort of taking off because i i, I read that i'm reading that as that she doesn't really want to have to uh, to kill these people by blowing them out of the out of the sky. So normally people are quite enthusiastic about blowing up helicopters. They can't wait to do it. Whereas here, you know, here was somebody who you know was weighing up the the human impact of what they were about to do and and was thinking, you know, this is something that's going to live on my conscience. Not something you normally see in a film. It is an interesting scene, especially because everything in this film has been a very sort of black and very black and white. That you've got. The very sort of clear-cut good guys, uh, which is our, our secret agent team. And then we have the bad guys who are very, sort of very textbook villainess. They're, they're, they just constantly do their villainous deeds. There's no sort of moral sort of complex. So for that to be through kind of like a bit of a twist, the fact that she didn't want to blow up the helicopter, uh, obviously she d- fulfills her duty, should we say, um, and, <laughs> and does the uh, deed in the end. But we do obviously have that moment of hesitation, which was... Uh, Add a bit more depth, should we say, to especially for an 80s action movie. So added a bit more depth in a film which generally has all the depth of a puddle. <laughs> okay, well, um, I, th- I think um, the only other uh, the only other sort of observations I had on this was actually I was I whilst the sort of method of destruction was fairly standard, I actually thought the quality of the fireball was actually quite high, given the sort of the low budget qualities of the rest of the film i i was expecting a sort of much lower grade chopper fireball but um it was actually uh you know a nice big 
you know, looked fairly real type of fireball. So I was I was pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with the explosion, but there's no sort of flaming wreckage that no. I was, that was expected. It sort of disintegrates. I think we get a bit of a landing stirrup falls down in, but I don't know where the rest of the helicopter goes. It just seems to disappear. I wondered if it was one of those things in films where maybe um, Sidaris had sort of bought some footage from another movie to um, sort of insert into this one because... Um, yeah, just just from sort of the rest of the film, it just sort of think, you know, how did they, you know, where did they get the kind of the budget to do that yeah. or the expertise, you know, the the kind of pyrotechnic expertise to do that. So uh, I wonder if that was an insert from uh, from another movie. But, you know, he went, you know, he realized, you know, I need to I need to get something that looks professional, that can do the job, went out, got the footage. It fits seamlessly into the film. So. Overall, you know, I was very happy with the uh, with the exploding helicopter on display here. Right, so I think that just about wraps things up for today's show. It just remains for me to say thank you and uh, goodbye to my guest, Elwood. Do you want to remind people where they can find your website and podcast? Probably the best place to queue up today, which is me coming and going and uh, what I'm kind of writing. You can find me on Twitter, which is uh, Elwood underscore Jones. If you're looking for you can find me at Channel Superhero, which is uh, channelsuperhero.com. Um, I'm also, as I said, I'm on Letterboxd, and there you can find the 1001 Coulton Obscure movie list that is my bad and strange list. Uh, but my main writings, as we said already, is on from the depths of DVD hell, and best way to find that is probably just type it into Google. Cool. So if you've enjoyed listening to the show, then please check out the Exploding Helicopter website at explodinghelicopter.blogspot.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at Chopper Farble. Just remains for me to say thanks to Tim for the music. We'll be back soon. And until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters.